The Founding Fathers, American Revolution, Our Constitution, Our History, America. Thanks so much for tuning in as we discuss the people, places, events, and battles that turned 13 separate colonies into the greatest nation on earth, the United States. Welcome back, patriots. I am your host, Ron Kern, and today is the 14th episode of my show. And I just wanted to take a second and tell you that I really appreciate you taking time to listen, learn, and experience my passion for the American Revolution. It means a lot. Okay, so I am super excited to get started, as this event discussed today will be a big one. And that is the Boston Massacre. It's one of the most well-known events in the Revolution, with many considering it the start, the actual starting point, of the Revolution. I will tell you that after a lot of research, what you learned in school and how the events went down is probably going to differ from what you hear today. I have spent a lot of time researching this from all angles. Over a dozen first-hand sources, witness accounts, actual depositions, which was very hard to read, by the way, because it's in 18th century writing, uh, but it's the actual document. So it took a long time, but it's really amazing. And I feel that what I'm going to talk about today is probably the most accurate version of what actually happened. At least that's what I think. I'm not on one side or the other. I have my own opinion, which I'll voice, of course, but What I realized is in all of my research, probably about eight or nine hours worth, to be honest, it's quite a bit different than most history books and certainly different um, than I was taught when I was going to school. So either way, it's pretty amazing. So the last episode, you know, we discussed the occupation of Boston and how that escalated to the first death of the revolution, which happened to be a young boy. But 11 days after he died, the war was baptized in the blood of five Americans gunned down in the Boston Massacre. There had never been anything like this event in America up to this point. Among the dead was Crispus Attucks, and he was a mixed-race young man, Uh, likely Milano. The history books claim that his was the first blood spilled in our cause of liberty, but I definitely disagree, as my last episode clearly demonstrates. I not only disagree with it, I'd go as far to say that he was actually one of two instigators that ignited the muskets that night. The Boston Massacre as a whole started a glorious conflict that ended with the birth of the best country ever made, and that's the United States. There were injuries and deaths in this massacre, but what if it wasn't actually a massacre? What if it was an act of self-defense? This event took place in the heart of Boston, near the old State House, which today is a national monument. But over 250 years ago, It was a crime scene. If you have been to this historical location, as I have, you've likely seen the large star that's embedded in the cobblestone in the street, and that is supposedly the place where the location of the massacre took place. I think it's pretty close, 
Uh, but the star is likely not as exact as it claims to be, in my opinion. I've determined from a variety of sources it's about 110 feet from that star. Now, what difference does it make? I say it's close enough for me and it really doesn't change the outcome. But thought you might want to know that is it's one of many things that I've uncovered that may not be quite accurate as it's taught or how you actually learned it. On a moonlit evening on March 5th, 1770, eight British soldiers and their captain fired on an angry crowd of colonists gathered in the square. When the smoke had cleared, five colonists were dead. The question then arose, was it murder or was it self-defense? These shootings were the culmination of a series of violent confrontations between British authorities and the Patriots that had been building for several years. And many of these we have discussed in previous shows in great detail. Sometime between 9 and 10 o'clock at night, soldiers under the command of Captain Thomas Preston, you'll want to remember his name, Captain Thomas Preston fired their muskets into a crowd of several hundred colonists, protesting the presence of British troops in Boston. That's apparently why they were there, right? But when the shooting stopped, three people were dead and eight people were wounded. And in an instant, the colonial world had changed. In that one single event, the question of just how far England would go was answered. And on that night, the Patriots realized that the struggle for independence would be one of blood, fighting, and war. Quote, we knew from that point on that this would be a fight. The only way we were going to rid ourselves of the crown was to fight and die. Those words were said by Sam Adams. Now it was obvious to both sides, both England and the colonials, that something terrible had just happened. It was a very scary time as nobody really knew what was going to happen next. And I think the best word to describe the overall feeling then was unstable. They may not have known what was going to happen next, but there was no doubt in anybody's mind, no matter what side you were on, that something big was going to happen because of it. It is impossible to overestimate the impact that this single incident had on the colonies and their struggle for independence. Today, over two centuries later, the musket shots still echo in Boston as a milestone, the starting point the beginning of the American Revolution. If you have listened to any of my previous shows, you have learned about what and how the tensions were rising and that the temperature of the city of Boston was off the thermometer charts. Fights, mobs, protests were becoming very common. Then, this event happened. This single event clearly showed that the road to freedom from the mother country breaking away from England was going to be a bumpy and bloody one. It was going to be a big struggle. Some historians think if nobody was shot that evening that the revolution wouldn't have taken place. I don't know if I fully agree with that. I think something would have eventually happened. But nonetheless, this event was indeed a turning point in the struggle that had been going on. And it put them on a collision course with England in a way that likely they had never imagined or experienced before. There were hundreds of people on State Street, or King Street as it was called back then, and they were all watching what was happening, and no two people described the events the same way. 
What little we do know about the shootings is derived from eyewitness accounts, autopsy reports, and contemporary newspaper stories. But these few facts are overwhelmed by questions that, even today, remain unanswered. Did Captain Preston order his men to shoot unarmed civilians? If not, why did the Redcoats fire on the crowd at all? How close were the colonists to the soldiers? Were the British soldiers ever in mortal danger? Was it really a massacre? What if the British soldiers were acting in self-defense? What if they had no choice but to fire in the mob of hundreds of people? I'm going to try to answer these questions in this podcast. Boston was divided at the time between loyalists and patriots. They lived close to one another. In fact, sometimes they lived on top of each other. Uh, For instance, Paul Revere lived about 100 feet away from Lieutenant Governor Hutchinson, and Hutchinson was a proud and staunch loyalist. For most Americans, everything we know about the Boston Massacre is derived from an engraving done by Paul Revere, right? It's everything about that night's events in this one picture that he drew. It was actually a cartoon first, and then he engraved it. But as you can imagine, a picture does uh, tell a thousand words, but in this instance, and other instances, pictures can be uh, lopsided. Uh, and, and that is true back then as well. Uh, people saw this this cartoon of what had happened. Uh, it was circulated in all the newspapers. If you were living back then and you pick up the newspaper, which, by the way, was the only way to get your news, this picture would depict something horrible. And it does depict that the mob was very innocent and these mean angry British soldiers were just shooting and killing innocent civilians. Now, just for some time comparison, Paul Revere created this uh, picture uh, five years before his legendary horseback ride at midnight. I have a picture of this engraving and other really cool and important things that you can view on our website, patriotpowerpodcast.com, and then just click on broadside. So this widely circulated picture It depicts a small group of unarmed civilians being cut down by a volley of musket fires from these powerful, mean, angry British soldiers. Now, this picture has been reprinted in countless history books and pamphlets, and it has really been the defining image of the incident for over 250 years. If you haven't seen it, I would be shocked, but it is located on our show notes for this episode on our blog. So take a gander. Like most propaganda... The engraving isn't accurate. In fact, most of it is not even close to what happened. The shootings took place at night. His drawing shows daytime. There was a thick layer of snow and ice on the ground, and the colonists were not the helpless, sad, and passive victims depicted in the engraving. There was a total of nine British soldiers at the scene that night, not eight. And most importantly, the picture depicts the British Captain Preston standing behind his men. And in the picture, Paul Revere shows his blatant anti-British bias. The witnesses placed Preston in front of the soldiers to begin with. At least that was one fact that most people agreed upon. I'm jumping ahead a bit here, but if you were standing in front of a line of soldiers with guns leveled, cocked, and ready to go, and you're standing in front, front of them, would you yell, fire? I don't think I would. No, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't. But at any rate, 
just one of the many things that this engraving slash cartoon depicted that was not real accurate. Another inaccuracy of this engraving is it shows the soldiers are lined up very neatly as if they're in firing formation and as if they're being given the signal to fire by their commanding officer. This contradicts the witness testimony. It contradicts what really happened. But in this picture that Paul Revere created, it really does make it look like a massacre. And we have very little information about the victims of this so-called massacre, but one that is usually spoken about is Crispus Attucks. Now, Attucks, as I mentioned before, is said to be the first uh, black American, he was mulatto, by the way, uh, to die for the cause of freedom, shot at point-blank range and stood at the front of the crowd, leading the charge directly in front of the soldiers. Now, based on his autopsy and the injuries and the map of the crime scene, which, by the way, Paul Revere also drew that, this just could not be the case, not even logistically. Now, I'm not going to go into that side story, but he could not have been in the front of the crowd and shot point-blank range as Revere drew him to be. His injuries just don't match or support that theory at all. The shooting involved eight British enlisted men and one officer, and at the time, the British soldiers carried and used what was called the Brown Bess Musket. Now, I have a picture of one of those on our broadside under this episode, so go take a look. Why would you want to take a look? It's just kind of cool to know exactly what type of firearm that they were using. Now, that evening, Hugh White, a sentry private, he was guarding the customs house. Now, keep in mind, the customs house, why was it being guarded? That is the place where all the taxes that they collected from the colonists were stored. And they only had one person out there standing guard, and that happened to be Hugh White. And he was just a private. Can you imagine standing outside when it was that cold and miserable (laughs) just things that we read about and we don't really put ourselves in those positions so he probably wasn't in greatest spirits and he was probably terribly cold but nonetheless around 8 p.m a young apprentice named edward garrick walked up to hugh white and he began to taunt him All records that I researched shows that Garrick was about 14 years old. So here you have a 14-year-old out at night walking up to a sentry guard and started taunting him. Now, how did he taunt him? I wanted to find that out, but I couldn't find exactly what was said or if anything um, was thrown uh, to or at the sentry. But... We do know that the taunting escalated until Hugh White had had enough, and he hit Garrick with the butt of his musket. Now, Garrick, this 14-year-old kid, fell to the ground. He got up and ran off. Now, word of this incident immediately swept through the town. That resulted in countless angry citizens descending upon the location or upon the square. Many of them, close to the confrontation, came from taverns and they had been drinking. The angry crowd surrounded the sentry and threatened him with bodily harm. So here you have a sentry guard doing his job, freezing his tail off. A kid comes up, starts taunting, does whatever he does, says things that takes him off. The guard had had enough, butts him with the end of his musket, and now you have 
hundreds of people surrounding this one guard. Now, while the entire town appeared to be erupting, Captain Thomas Preston was in the main barracks, which was located right across the street from the old state house, but it was still close enough that he could hear White call for help, and he also heard all of the commotion. So Captain Preston marched in with a group of six privates and one corporal. Once there, they attempted to bring him back and escort him back to the barracks, but they couldn't. They were stopped by the angry mob of citizens. Now, a mob that at that point had grown to about 300 people. So picture a very small square surrounded by buildings and taverns and custom houses and apartments and all of that. It's, it's rel relatively small. And you have these guys that are trying to rescue or at least help Hugh out of that situation. And there's nine of them surrounded by 300 ticked off, angry people. And most of, I shouldn't say most, I don't know, but I do know a lot of them uh, were not sober. Having no access point towards safety or an escape route from the crowd, Preston ordered his troops to form a semicircle and took a position in front of his men. Now here's where the story gets twisted a little bit, but it is a focal point in the trial that would commence in the aftermath. Many, including the engraving that Revere created, said and showed that Preston was behind the men and yelled, Fire! Fire! over and over again. The ugly demonstration turned lethal. Now, when Patriot Richard Palms, who is a local rope maker, struck one of the soldiers named Montgomery with a stick, this time a British soldier was knocked to the ground. But when Montgomery got up after being knocked down, he fired into the crowd. Moments later, that's when the Boston Massacre began. The other soldiers let loose with a fuselage of musket fire. Eleven people in total fell, and the mass of angry people retreated. So here you are, you have this 300 people. The soldier gets knocked down, he gets back up, he fires into the crowd, they all scatter. Now during that time that people were retreating, the soldiers reloaded their muskets and then saw the mob coming back to them. Now the mob was apparently going to retrieve the wounded, but the soldiers, now fearful and full of adrenaline, thought that they were going to come back and do more harm to the soldiers. So when the mob advanced, the soldiers all aimed in the crowd and fired again. The mob just prior to this point had tried to break into the customs house using picks and shovels, but they were unsuccessful. So does this sound like an innocent crowd shot down in cold blood massacre style? I don't know. Now, when Preston saw this, he immediately knocked up their muzzles yelling, Don't fire! Stop! And he said that at least twice. Preston then ordered his men into a column of twos and had them march back to their barracks. Paul Revere, Sam Adams, and other Patriot leaders, many of them were members of the Sons of Liberty, turned this event into a symbol of England's tyranny, a massacre that demanded justice. And from the start, Captain Preston claimed that the shootings had been a tragic accident and that his men were really only protecting themselves in self-defense. But as you can imagine, nobody believed him. They didn't even want to listen to him. And on March 13th, Preston and six of the other soldiers were indicted and arrested 
for murder. If you like my podcast and what I'm doing, and you want to support it, I have a few ways that you can do that. Word of mouth is certainly the best way to advertise, so please tell your friends and family about this podcast. It's kid-friendly, too, so you can share it with teachers and schools if you want to. Podcasts that have a lot of reviews are just found easier. So if you have a few seconds, and literally that's all it takes, go to the bottom of my podcast, click the number of stars that you feel it is warranted, and that's it. You can write something if you want, but that's not necessary. It literally takes you just a few seconds. Lastly, we have some pretty cool patriotic gear on our newly launched online store. We have mugs, t-shirts with famous and important revolutionary quotes. Thanks for your consideration. And now, let's get back to the podcast. Who in their right mind would take up a case to defend these instigators of the Boston Massacre? Every one of them were guilty in everyone's eyes, and so much that trees nearby the courthouse and even around 10 were decorated with long ropes ready to serve justice upon them all. The lawyer for the defense was none other than John Adams. Now, you'll find that events, important situations, amazing writing, John Adams just always seems to be there. Uh, he, in my opinion, is one of the underrated, under-spoke-about, and um, he is an amazing, fascinating man. His wife was brilliant. That's a whole episode, probably a bonus uh, episode. But John Adams, who always seemed to think that in history, long after he's dead and gone, um, people would not remember him the way they they remember others. Well, that's sadly kind of come true. Did you know that there's no monument in Washington, D.C. or anywhere else of John Adams? Now, the amazing David McCullough, who I spoke about, I believe, two episodes ago, who recently passed away, uh, he was on a mission to get a statue and a monument in John Adams' honor. And I'm not sure what the status is, but I hope that actually happens. But if you have watched the HBO series, John Adams, the courtroom scene of the trial is quite tense and it's exceptionally done. In this series, I believe they used court transcripts. So when you're watching it, you are actually listening to what was what was said. The actors that they chose for that were brilliant. Nobody else, in my opinion, could have been a better John Adams uh, than who they chose. Um, so if you have not seen that series, the whole series is amazing. But that courtroom scene, it's very, very powerful. Many people felt that John Adams had just sealed his fate and ruined his career by taking the case. Now, he was doomed if he tried to defend them. And in the highly unlikely event that he was even able to reduce the sentences or get any of them acquitted, it would be all that much worse for him. John Adams recalled years later about meeting with Preston before the trial. Quote, with tears streaming down his eyes, he said, I am come with a very solemn message from a very unfortunate man, Captain Preston in prison. He wishes for counsel and can get none. Now, I hope I don't go too far off on a tangent or bore you here, but 
think about this. You are an emerging attorney in Boston. You are doing exceptionally well. You're very well known. Not saying you're very well liked um, because he didn't hold anything back and he pretty much spoke his mind. He had very little tact early on. But here here you are. Your, your career is booming. You're about ready to really, quote, make it. And you decide to take a case that was unwinnable, most people thought. And here you are protecting or representing the people that the colonists were up in arms about, literally. And so it's just amazing that he had the integrity and the respect for the law, but these men, that they should have a fair trial. So he took it. Pretty pretty amazing step of courage, I would say. Now, the trial hinged on one essential question. Had the British soldiers acted in self-defense, or did they commit murder? Most of the eyewitnesses to the shootings agreed upon the events leading up to the moment when Richard Palm struck Private Montgomery, and then Montgomery got up off the ground and fired his musket. At that point, however, the discrepancies began. When Montgomery goes down, there are other soldiers that are witnessing this, and they also have to protect themselves. So what do they do? They fire back. They shoot into the crowd. Were they firing to kill specific people, or were their intentions to keep the crowd away from them? We do know that some, but not all, of the remaining soldiers fired their muskets into the crowd. Some witnesses said that the time between the first shot and the barrage of gunfire was 15 seconds. Others said two minutes. Even today, witnesses and their statements rarely match, which seems pretty odd to me, but that's another topic, and we'll leave it as eyewitness testimony is as unreliable then as it is today. In the trial, most of the eyewitnesses agreed that the incident began when an angry crowd confronted a small detachment of British soldiers in front of the Customs House. The situation escalated when a colonial named Richard Palms struck one of the soldiers with a stick. The soldier fired once. What happened next became a key point of contention during the trial of the soldiers. Before the shooting started, the British Captain Thomas Preston was in front of his men facing the crowd. Some witnesses said that Captain Preston ordered his soldiers to fire. Others said that the soldiers discharged their weapons on their own. If you stand in front of nine soldiers, you're in front of them, barrels facing towards you. Would you yell fire? No, you wouldn't. Doesn't make any sense. But everybody agreed and wrote down in testimony that Captain Preston was in front of them. But others wrote down in testimony that they heard him. They saw the words come out of his mouth, fire, fire. If Captain Preston had given the command to fire, then he would have been held responsible for murder. So... The central question raised during the trial was, did Captain Preston order his men to shoot unarmed civilians? According to witnesses, the crowd had taunted the soldiers by daring them to shoot. Did the crowd bring the fire onto themselves? Let's not forget that they were in fact throwing snowballs, oyster shells, rocks. Some of the rocks were described to be as large as a human head. And anything else that they could find that they were throwing at the soldiers. They were loud rambunctious and angry, moving toward the soldiers. 
Let's not forget that many in the mob had left nearby taverns, and many weren't on the sober side of things. It's cold. You know, you get hit by a ice ball or snowball. It hurts, right? How about getting hit with 300 of them? And oyster shells, they're very sharp. Rocks, we know what that can do. So it wasn't just, you know, a little pebble here and there and people yelling things. This was 300 people, some of them drunk, and throwing these objects, big, heavy, toward these nine people. Now, the court appointed Samuel Quincy as special prosecutor. Sam Adams persuaded the town of Boston to pay for a second prosecutor, and that happened to become Patriot Robert Treat Payne. These men wanted the soldiers to be found guilty, have it be a very quick trial, and hung for the murders that they committed. Sam Adams, remember, is the second cousin of John Adams. Now, John Adams obviously was a patriot, but he wasn't as outspoken verbally and wasn't involved with riots, protests, and did not agree with violence like Sam Adams and the Sons of Liberty did. They both wanted freedom from England, they just went about it differently. But it's kind of ironic that both of them were involved in this trial on opposite sides. I mean, you have John Adams believing in the cause for independence, believing that what England was doing was wrong, and yet he was brave enough to say, listen, I have to defend. He, they have to have a fair trial. They have to have representation. And he took that case. It's just, I, I know I just said that, but... It's pretty amazing if you really put yourself in his shoes and think about it. Now, what did John Adams say to start the trial? He said a lot. In fact, it's probably a five-minute worth uh, of reading, which, don't worry, I'm not going to do. One of the most memorable quotes is this. It is better that five guilty persons should escape unpunished than one innocent person should die. During the trial, Adams argued that Captain... Thomas Preston had never issued the order for his soldiers to fire and that those who had shot into the crowd did so entirely in self-defense. Adams called those within the mob that provoked the soldiers outlandish jacktars, among other things. He was also very convinced that nobody in their right mind would stand in front of a line of soldiers and yell fire. Witnesses for the defense described the insult, curses, threats, taunts, and the physical objects that the mob hurled upon the soldiers. Dr. John Jeffries, now this is, this is amazing. Um, if this doesn't speak volumes, I, I don't know what will, but so here it is. Dr. John Jeffries, who treated one of the victims that was shot, and his name was Patrick Carr. He treated Patrick Carr for 10 days before Carr finally died from his wounds. But Carr gave especially effective testimony. Dr. Jeffries related that Carr, on his deathbed, said that he believed the soldiers fired to defend themselves and that he did not blame any of them nor blame the man who shot him. It's a pretty telling and convincing statement. As if anyone would likely know, it would have been Patrick Carr. One witness said he heard from the mob, Damn you, you sons of fire. You can't kill us all. John Adams spent much of his closing arguments educating the jury on the law of self-defense. He recalled the testimony about the 
people crying, kill them, kill them, knock them over, heaving snowballs, oyster shells, clubs, white birch sticks. And then Adams then asked the jurors to consider yourselves in this situation and then judge whether a reasonable man would not have concluded they were going to kill them. So he, he asked the jury to put themselves in the shoes of these soldiers. Adams continued his defense on why his clients were not guilty of murder. He said, I will enlarge no more on the evidence, but submit it to you. Facts are stubborn things, and whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passions, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. Nor is the law less stable than the fact, if an assault was made to endanger their lives, the law is clear. They had a right to kill in their own defense. If it was not so severe as to endanger their lives, yet if they were assaulted at all, struck and abused by blows of any sort, by snowballs, oyster shells, cinders, clubs, rocks, sticks of any kind, this was a provocation for which the law reduces the offense of killing down to manslaughter in consideration of those passions in our nature which cannot be eradicated. To your candor and justice, I submit the prisoners and their cause. Man, nobody writes like that anymore. Um, you've probably heard that quote, right? Facts are stubborn things. Uh, John Adams is awesome. Just saying. Captain Preston's testimony, he said, on this, a general attack was made on the men by a great number of heavy clubs and snowballs being thrown at them, by which all of our lives were in imminent danger. Some persons at the same time from behind calling out, damn your bloods, why don't you fire? Instantly, three or four of the soldiers fired, one after another, and directly after, three more in the same confusion and hurry. The mob then ran away, except three unhappy men who instantly expired, in which number was Mr. Gray, at whose rope walk the prior quarrels took place. One more is since dead, three others are dangerously and four slightly wounded. The whole of this melancholy affair was transacted in almost twenty minutes. On my asking the soldiers why they fired without orders, they said they heard the word fire and supposed that it came from me. So that was what Thomas Preston said. Now, with a case like this, you might think that the jury would take days, maybe weeks, to decide the soldier's fate. But after deliberating for only three hours, the jurors found all of the soldiers innocent of murder but judged that Privates Montgomery and Kilroy guilty of manslaughter. Although these men were technically convicted of a capital offense, the court permitted them to make a special plea that reduced their penalty to branding on the thumb. That was the punishment they received, a brand on their thumb. Montgomery later admitted that it was himself who had shouted, Damn you, fire! just before he shot his musket. In my personal opinion, the fact that thousands of soldiers were on the streets of Boston and having a standing army in the first place wasn't the best idea that England could come up with. Additionally, the laws passed and the countless taxes that they were imposing were not only unfair, they were technically illegal. Although England provided reasons and justifications for everything they did, it all led to this, the Boston Massacre, as well as future incidents up to and including the actual war. 
Whatever became of Captain Thomas Preston? Well, within a month, he left the colonies and retired from the British Army. In fact, he retired from the British Army immediately. And he settled in Ireland. Ironically, John Adams later recalled seeing him in London in the 1780s when Adams was serving there as a U.S. minister to Britain. Neither Preston or Adams said a word to one another. There is no written description of how that looked, but I envision it in my mind as a bit foggy, overcast, in London, both walking by some shops on the sidewalk, heading opposite directions, and they recognize one another, say nothing, and keep walking. Now, Preston wrote a farewell note to General Thomas Gage, who at the time was the commander of the British occupying forces. In this note, he referred to his acquittal, I take the liberty of wishing you joy at the complete victory obtained over the knaves and foolish villains of Boston. In closing, here are some things for you to think about, consider, and take away from the show. I'll also mention some facts about the massacre that you may or may not have known. Excluding the fact that England had thousands of British troops in Boston, the Boston Massacre was really started by the colonists. Sam Adams and John Adams were both very involved with this event. Sam Adams urged and prompted certain prosecutors to get guilty verdicts, while his second cousin John Adams defended the soldiers involved in the shooting. There were five deaths and 11 injuries that occurred. The trial started November 27, 1770. None of the soldiers went to jail. None were executed or really received any harsh punishment. Does this sound familiar to Ebenezer Richardson from our last show? Pretty close, huh? Hugh White was the only soldier standing guard in defending the customs house, which held the king's money, or more accurately, the money from the colonists that they taxed and collected. John Adams took the case and defended the soldiers as he felt if the colonies were going to fight for freedom, then the rule of law must be obeyed and given to all persons, including British soldiers. His integrity and love for the law are second to none, in my opinion. John Adams, knowing that Bostonians would never be impartial, convinced the judge to pull people for the jury outside of Boston. He was also very smart that most of them were Tories or supporters of England, so he really had a good jury to start this case off. There's a lot of speculation and things you can find about that, I won't go into that. Just know that John Adams was super intelligent from long before he stood in front of the George and gave his opening remarks. Uh, he had already done his homework and had a jury that he felt at least would be fair. Sam Adams is the one that called or coined the phrase the Boston Massacre. Immediately after the shooting, the town bells rang, which almost always meant and indicated fire. And John Adams, who was at a club at the time, rushed to the scene and was on site of the Boston Massacre shortly after it was over. And a question to ponder, do you think it was self-defense? Do you think it was the colonists' fault or the soldiers' fault? As with every show, I put links for you to explore and take a deeper dive if you're interested. Now, each show note and link is included within each show's description. 
There I put photos, maps, and paintings that coincide with whatever we're talking about, whatever the focus of the episode is. And to view those, just visit our website, patriotpowerpodcast.com, and then click on Broadside. The links for this show are pretty amazing. One of the links includes actual documents, handwritten, showing depositions, diaries, statements, and more. Uh, It was kind of fun looking through John Adams' notes about what he was going to say, what he actually said, and just when you read them and looking at the actual document, for me, I think, and others, it it makes it seem more real. Uh, And I encourage you to explore all of the links that I provide. Our next show is going to discuss the Gatsby Affair, the Tea Act, and yet another well-known event, the Boston Tea Party. Now that's going to get us to the year 1773, so until then, get caught up on any missed episodes as it's only getting crazier and super interesting from here on out. Have a great rest of your week. Thanks for listening and hope that you tune in next time with us here at the Patriot Power Podcast. Make sure that you hit subscribe so you'll get notified when our new episodes are available for you. And we hope that you check out our websites, which include our show notes, links, documents, and more at PatriotPowerPodcast.com or ILoveGeorgeWashington.com. Until next time, hope that you and your family have a blessed week. And remember, be safe and tell a veteran thanks for their service.